Luego, I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Um, look, I'm on the air both in Washington and New York this week. Um, we've had uh, a couple of preemptions, some because of special programming, some because of maintenance and that kind of thing, but uh, I'm happy to report that I am on both WBAI and WPFW this week. And, uh, and, and I'm glad that I am because this is a kind of a, 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 an important show. And in fact, I'm going to post this show both as a resistance radio podcast and as a Let's Talk Native podcast because I'm covering information that is, that is really, really kind of important. So, um, but before I get into it, let me again uh, welcome the listening audience from Washington and from New York City. Uh, I have to, as always, encourage you to support the radio station, support this program. And if you're listening in New York on WBAI, I ask that you go to the pledge line, go to 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. Uh, if you are listening in Washington, D.C., uh, I'm asking you to go to their pledge line in, uh, at WPFW, which is 202-588-9739, or go online to WPFWDC.org slash donate. Um, and look, if you're listening on the internet or, uh, you know, or, or as a podcast, however, however you're listening, uh, I encourage you to, to support either one of the radio stations or both the radio stations because uh, I appreciate that both radio stations are carrying. And I think there may be, there may be on occasion a couple of other Pacifica affiliates that, uh, that run the show on, on occasion. Uh, and you know, so, again, it, wherever you're hearing this, however you're hearing this, if you have an opportunity to support the platform that... Um, that is carrying it, uh, then uh, I would greatly appreciate it. Okay, um, I've got to talk about the Indian Child Welfare Act. So the Supreme Court essentially has just struck down the challenge to what we call ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act. And it, look, there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of conversation. In fact, I've mentioned it a few times on, on previous shows. A lot of conversation about um, what ICWA did, what ICWA did, you know, well, what you know, and and I think it's important that um, that somebody offers some perspective that's different than what you're hearing from everywhere else. So uh, I'm going to tell you, I'm not a fan of ICWA. Uh, I'm not saying that I wish it was struck down here. I'm not. I'm not saying I supported the challenge. In fact, the challenge was just a horrendous challenge. And, and I'm, so I'm, I want to talk about the law. I want to talk about the um, the ruling, and I want to talk about the challenge. So let me start with the law. So. ICWA was passed in 1978, and it was touted as a solution by Congress to both the 150 years uh, and, or, or more of stripping our children from our, fa from our families. And this was being done through uh, the residential schools. It was being done through foster care. It was being done through adoption. It was, doing, it was hap happening in many different ways. And and of course, the United States set the model for how a dominant culture could, uh, could try to eradicate um, indigenous people by, going, by targeting our children. And, and, that, you know, and that model was, was followed throughout the world. You know, most notably, uh, just across the, the northern imaginary line in Canada, where Canada uh, followed almost to a T the, both the residential school model that the United States had created, and the foster care and adoption model. So ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, 
the boast or the hope was that they would um, stop this removal and placement of children um, uh, to be raised, owned, <laughs> I mean, uh, 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 claimed by, uh, by white people. And it did to some extent. But, but I, have to, I have to caution people because we oftentimes hear, well, ICWA was all about recognizing native sovereignty. No, it wasn't. What I will say that ICWA did is it recognized the value of our culture, to some extent, it recognized the value of our culture. And they knew that taking ch a child from our people, from our communities, from our culture, and putting them in, uh, you know, to be raised, uh, to be further assimilated both in these schools and in these white families, was, they knew it was a destructive uh, force. They knew that it was a destructive policy. It was the intent, but they couldn't justify it anymore. So what they did with ICWA was, was place a higher value on our culture, not our sovereignty, but our culture. So here's what they did. They said states, which, which are primarily the, you know, the governing uh, authority over families, essentially, the federal government doesn't have that much uh, to say about that in general. This is, you know, again, the challenge to ICWA became the states' rights versus federal, uh, federal rights um, uh, argument, which is another problem that I'll get into. But what they said is that when a state removes a child from a family, uh, and, and we're talking Native children here, and of course the state does it to, you know, to, to all kinds, especially marginalized people, but when they take a Native child from a from Native family, the federal government through ICWA saying, you have to prioritize placing that child with a native family, even if it's not their, their blood relatives, frankly, even if it's not even the same nation. They, what the federal government was saying is, we know how destructive we have been to native people. And this is 1978. Remember, this is like a decade after civil rights. So this is how, how late to the game is. I mean, I, was, I graduated from high school in 1978. So, so this is what, what the federal government said. They said, you've got to put a, put a priority on placing those children back with, uh, with Native families. Now, that sounds great, but it isn't. Because, like I said, it's not a recognition of our sovereignty. What it is, is the state government being having guardrails put up to it, by it, or, or for it, by the federal government. It isn't a recognition of our sovereignty. There's no place in the law that says, okay, we're going to let the nations themselves or, the, or these native, native courts uh, determine placement. No, we still didn't. We neither had a role in removing a child from a, from a family nor placing a child with a family. I'm going to take a, just a, let me back up just for a second because one of the things I want to talk about was, are the five policies that the United States has had towards native people. And it starts with extermination. Pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> um, they, they were killing us. I mean, they were murdering us. They were, they were giving scout bounties out. They were, they were reducing our population in any means. And I'm not just talking about the United States, but even the, the prede predecessors of the United States. I mean, <laughs> uh, we, we, we talk about uh, Lord Jeffrey Amherst, who, for the most part, and I don't know if there's any other documented um, attempt to do this, but Lord Jeffrey Amherst actually recommended distributing diseased blankets, infested blankets to Native people to kill us. Might be the first example of, 
uh, germ warfare by one you know, society, one nation, one people over another. And it was effective. You know, many, many Native people died of smallpox um, and, and, you know, a very, various diseases that, that white people uh, had, uh, you know, had brought with them when they, when they came to our lands. So our population had been decimated um, as a part of this uh, extermination um, policy, period. Now, I say period. As I go through these, these five policies, I have to uh, caution that they don't start and stop. In fact, they, they overlap in, in many ways. Um, yeah, honestly, they're were, they were killing us until 1890 was the, was the final um, slaughter of Native people at Wounded Knee. Um, so th there's that. I mean, uh, I mean, so we were being killed from, from when it was French, British, uh, Spanish, all the way up until it was, you know, the, the Lincoln administration, you know, eliminates slavery, but we're still killing native people. In fact, we're going to offer through Buffalo soldiers, we're going to pay black people to, uh, to join our military to help us kill Indians. I mean, that's, you know, so that's, that's the extermination policy. That policy would be followed by, or not even followed, but it would overlap with what they called removal. Now, removal was just the idea of, of taking our lands and forcing us sometimes on foot, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles uh, from our original homeland. Uh, you know, the Cherokee, I think a third of the population died along the way as they were being forced out of their homelands to go to Oklahoma. So removal was also a policy, which, again, has several iterations. Uh, many people removed from the early colonial days to, you know, uh, through the 1800s. Uh, you know, the, there was actually a law called the Removal Act, which, uh, which you know, Andrew Jackson uh, was famous for, you know, basically telling the Supreme Court, yeah, you've got your rulings, but I've got the army and I'm going to remove these people. And of course, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson played a big role in what would be part of this removal policy because part of the justification for, for the Louisiana purchase, which was, you know, white people buying and selling land that they didn't really own, uh, land of native people. Uh, but Jefferson's plan and the way he sold this to the Southern states was, I'm going to get rid of all the native people. We're going to push them all west of the Mississippi. So that's the removal. Um, and part of this idea of removal policy does include essential residential schools because our children were removed from our territories, removed from our families. But the next one is what really with residential schools was, was primarily about, and it was it's assimilation. Assimilation was, it's, it's kind of like 1978 in a way. <laughs> you, you, you get to a place where you realize we can't keep doing what we were doing, you know, and murdering Native people is probably not, um, you know, sustainable. You know, we do have the eyes of the rest of the world that's watching us, and, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like why Lincoln wouldn't execute 300 people uh, when they're put on trial uh, and, and executed at Mankato, Minnesota, he said, now nah, I got to whittle that number down to something that uh, the rest of the world won't scrutinize us too strongly over. So the Dakota 38 would be the 38 people that he would, uh, he would have executed in a kangaroo, after a kangaroo court. Um, but I mean, so, so there's all of this awareness of how you're being viewed. So assimilation would say, okay, we're going to... Um, eliminate Native people by not allowing them to be Native people anymore. In fact, we're going to adopt a policy called kill the Indian, save the man. 
And we're going to tell everybody what we're only trying to do is kill that portion of a human being that is native, and the remainder will be a real human being, an American. That's what assimilation is, and that's what um, the residential schools were all about. That, that was the policy for the residential schools. Kill the Indian, save the man. On the Canadian side, they altered a little bit. They said, we're going to kill the Indian in the child, is what their policy was. Similar. <laughs> I mean, same thing, really. But uh, they, they use a little bit different language. And then what they thought they could do with, you know, with this long tenure of, um, of assimilation is they could do something um, on paper, permanent. I mean, this is why I, when I hear people say things like paper genocide or cultural genocide, I understand what they're trying to say, but it's all genocide. But what would follow um, in much of this uh, to kind of be the bookend of a lot of this assimilation policy was termination. Now, termination sounds a little bit like extermination, but what termination was was we just aren't going to recognize you as Native people anymore. We're going to terminate our trust responsibility, which are tied to all the treaties that we signed for, you know, for you know, for over 100 years, in some cases 200, we're going we're gonna to terminate that. We no longer have obligations because you aren't those people anymore. We, we told you for, for, for a couple of centuries that you were barely human, if human at all. We told you that. And now that we have um, had this campaign of assimilation, now we can say you're not those people you once were. So we're going to terminate your identity. You're just Americans now. But even termination was, uh, at some point, would be regarded as, as too harsh. So then they enter into an era that they call self-determination, which is where the federal government said, well, we're going to, um, you know, create a box that, uh, that we can plate these Native people in. Not, and this is both metaphorical and, and is associated with, with the, you know, the, the box that reservations represented. But we're going to say, we're going to allow you to govern yourself within, within certain limitations. Now, mind you, none of this stuff uh, includes recognition of sovereignty. Actually, with the possible exception of warfare, none of this recognizes sovereignty. And, and I have to say that somewhere along the line, as courts were ruling on some of on Native issues, came this notion that Congress had plenary powers over the affairs of Native people, that Congress could regulate the meets and bounds of whatever sovereignty that we retained. Now, where does this come from? Well, the Supreme Court said that it came from the U.S. Constitution. They claim that it comes from the Commerce Clause of the U.S. Constitution. You know, they, they, they tried to say that it was, you know, we're only mentioned a few places in, in the Constitution, but this is one where, where it was clear that they were trying to define the relation between Congress and Native people. And, and here's what the Commerce Clause says. The Commerce Clause says, Congress shall have the power to regulate the commerce with foreign nations, with several states, or among several states, and with Indian tribes. That's what the Commerce Clause says. Now, i got to point out a couple of things. It doesn't say that it has the authority to regulate commerce of Indian tribes or of foreign nations. It just says with us. And it is really specific to commerce. But this is what the courts have said. Well, 
you know, commerce is everything in, in a capitalist system, right? Commerce is everything. So the Supreme Court basically said that clause clearly demonstrates that the founding fathers wanted Congress to have, and I say plenary power, so I can explain. Plenary means absolute. I mean, it, it means ultimate, <laughs> ultimate power over Native people. But again, it doesn't say that Congress will have the power to regulate our commerce. It says commerce with us, not of us, not for us. And, and if you assume, if you're going to make the same assumption the Supreme Court did about, about this plenary powers doctrine, then are you suggesting that Congress has, you know, has plenary powers over all foreign nations? Because it's the same language. Has the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and with Indian tribes. So it's absurd. But that's how they could um, pass laws that were so you know, detrimental to Native people. You know, they would do it through Congress. So, and I mentioned all this stuff for a reason. Now, first, I got to say, um, ICWA does not follow. I mean, and self determination was was kind of the the predominant or the prevailing policy in 1978. But uh, ICWA didn't follow self determination. It didn't recognize our authority, our ability, our right, our sovereignty over the welfare of our own children. It didn't. It basically reduced our issues to a battle between the plenary powers of Congress, and the normal powers of, of a state as it relates to families and child placement. So it took this notion of plenary powers that Congress was now claiming they had because the Supreme Court said they had it, and said, we're going to tell the states what they could do about native, uh, native placement. And, you know, and obviously this is, runs into a relatively long list of um, conflicts between states and the federal government over who has authority over what. But again, nobody's suggesting that, that it's our sovereignty that is, you know, that is the question here. It's about whether the, the federal government has the power to tell the states where they could place Native kids. And that law has held since 1978, long time. So I find ICWA to be problematic because it doesn't recognize our sovereignty. It violates even their policy of limited self-determination because it bolsters this notion that Congress is the federal or is the U.S. governing um, entity that has the ultimate say over all, of, uh, over all Native people. Something that I reject. I reject out of hand the, completely the plenary powers doctrine. Now, having said that, if I only had two choices in the world between dealing with the federal government or dealing with states, I would never want to place um, our, you know, our future, you know, or our well-being at the hands of state governments because state governments can be terrible and and they can vary so much state to state. So um, now that's not that's not an endorsement for the plenary powers of Congress. That's just just a matter of fact. So. That's what ICWA um, is and does. Now, having said all that, there is no question that the federal government telling the states that they, they could no longer have this inundation of um, federal or, or state authorities going in, ripping kids out of, our, out of their homes, out of our homes, and then placing with white people, either in boarding schools, in foster care, or in adoption. ICWA 
did stop that, um, that floodgate. Didn't do it the right way as far as I'm concerned, but it did stop it. So I'm not saying that it, was, it didn't have some positive effect. It absolutely did. All right, so then, then we have the challenge. And I'm going to do the challenge first before I get into the ruling because I, I think it's important. So with the challenge, and ICWA has been somewhat challenged before, by, and it's always by white people who are basically trying to, to you know, have their own little Indian child. So it's basically white people who are, are either through foster care or, or adoption primarily. I mean, we don't have residential schools still fight, trying to fight to, uh, you know, to stay in existence in the same way that foster care and adoption has. So this last iteration is a family called the Brackeens. They live in Texas. And they took custody of a child um, whose native, native child, whose mother had a drug problem, um, not sure about the father necessarily. And they had this child in foster care. And, and apparently they even had some okay from the mother to, to adopt the child. And maybe even the nation. I think it was the Navajo Nation, if I'm not mistaken. I, I could be mistaken. Um, but then the woman had another child with a different man. And this family wanted that child too. Even though the children didn't really know each other, um, they tried to argue that it was so, so important to keep the siblings together. Now, there's already a bit of a problem because they've, they've taken custody through foster care and the, and the adoption of this one native child. And the law wasn't completely settled about whether this woman's family or some other family within the Navajo Nation or other native territory for that matter um, could make uh, the effort to, to take custody of the, of the first child. And, but now this family was already making, uh, making the argument to take custody of the second child. But with the second child, it was clear that there was a family member who wanted to take the child, not the Brackeens. So the Brackeens went on a campaign to challenge ICWA. They made several arguments. One argument was that it was just an overreach by the federal government telling states what they could do with children when the prevailing um, jurisdiction over child placement and, and family you know, court and that kind of stuff was always with the states, and this was, this was an overreach by the federal government. So this challenged the plenary power doctrine, in other words. The other thing that the Brackeens were, were arguing that they were making was that this was a, a violation, this was non-constitutional because it um, violated the Equal Protections Act. They were basically saying they were being discriminated against, white people. <laughs> yeah, white people were being discriminated against because they were being denied the right to take Native children. And these guys were specifically were being denied the right to take these Native children and own them, to have them, to be theirs. And they argued that the well-being of the children was better with them. Now, why would it be better with these people? Well, they were white, they were Christian, and they were wealthy. Now, look. I know there's some people listening to this program who say, look, uh, you know, any child that could be w raised in a wealthy household, uh, you know, they're going to be better off than being raised on an impoverished native territory. Well, ICWA doesn't uh, agree with that. ICWA does enter into the fray the value of culture. And, and I heard in the oral arguments, even Brett Kavanaugh, who basically w was saying, well, so then a family who would otherwise 
serve the best interest of, of, the, of this child could be denied simply because of their race. He didn't say culture. He didn't mention sovereignty, of course. He didn't say anything about the value of a native child having any native identity reinforced by, their, by his community or whatever. He just said race. So I, you know, I was tipped off immediately that, that Brett Kavanaugh was, was, was trying to make this just a race argument. Interestingly enough, he's one of the justices that sided with the seven to two majority to, um, to you know, rebuff the challenge. But, uh, you know, I'll get into that more when I talk about the, the, um, the ruling. But this is what has to be understood about reducing us as a, as a, as a distinct people, regardless of the, the fact that the federal government has tried to play two hands all the time about native sovereignty. Look, we, had treat, we have treaties with the United States, one nation to another. There's nothing that demonstrates sovereignty more than, than the treaty making that existed between almost all native peoples, um, either in groups or as individual nations with the United States. But you would be hard pressed to find in anything even remotely contemporary, including this ruling, by the way, where the federal government is acknowledging our sovereignty without putting the word tribal in front of it, which is to suggest that when we say tribal sovereignty, we don't really mean sovereignty. Look, I'll take another step back here. When the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was being proposed, the United States opposed it. They, in fact, they and you know, uh, four other nations voted against it. Canada, <laughs> United States, Australia, uh, New Zealand, maybe it was only four in New Zealand. They were the nations who voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. And this is a minimum standard for the rights of Indigenous people. And it never addressed, addresses sovereignty, except for the, the nation states who, you know, who are being told from a matter of international law that there, that there has to be these, uh, these, these minimum standards. And the problem the United States had was this notion of self-determination, self-governance. Because what the United States says, when we say self-determination about Native people, we don't mean the international definition. We aren't talking about statehood. We aren't talking about true sovereignty. In fact, we reject the notion that Native people would have sovereignty over their own land and clearly over their own children. So the United States has always tried to put even the notion or the concept of sovereignty in a box that had limitations, again, that Congress could regulate the meets and bounds of. So I, I think it's, it's, it's important to, to note that. So by, but by trying to reduce us to just a race, essentially, this is like the termination era with one fell swoop. It was entirely possible that this ultra-conservative court could have struck down the Indian Child Welfare Act on the grounds not only of, you know, of states' rights, and they could have done it there, but, that, but that, that it was a violation of the Equal Protection Act. And that we should not have any special consideration for Native people. And I'm saying this as if I'm the federal government. But the, that, the, that the United States should have no special consideration to Native people. 
as anything more than a marginalized race or an inferior race at that. Because look, the poverty levels, you know, uh, all of the all of the things that uh, you, we head up all the lists that you don't want to be on the top of because of federal policy. But uh, but regardless, so that was the attempt of the Brackeens. Now, why would the Brackeens make that so much the part of the argument? Well, let, let's be clear here: oil companies have were the ones that were sponsoring some of the Brackeens challenge. Now, why would the oil companies want to reduce this to a race? Well, I got to tell you, if we are merely a race of Americans, then the whole status of native land gets thrown up in the air. Things like, you know, the status of native gaming, the status of everything. If we're merely a race of, I mean, look, there's challenges on, on affirmative action. Well, if you think affirmative action is being challenged, this notion that any semblance of native sovereignty could, could exist because, because we're merely a race of Americans. That's what was being challenged here. That was the big picture. And that's why so many Native people were alarmed by the challenge to ICWA. And look, I know that I am in the, the, a solid, tiny minority of people who are not fans of the Indian Child Welfare Act. And I told you the reasons why. Now, and again, I'm not going to suggest that you know, that ICWA didn't fulfill some of um, its intentions, which was to stop the flow of children from our communities. But it didn't recognize our sovereignty. And that's, and that's the problem that I have. And the crazy part with this challenge is we find ourselves in this really perilous position to where we've got we've to argue that Congress does have plenary powers over us? And that's exactly what we had to argue. Now, look, we made other arguments. We argued that, that we were a political group, not a racial group. We argued that our sovereignty, uh, you know, is what made us distinct. Not just, you know, the shade of our skin or the color of our skin. We, that, these are some of the arguments we made. But we also had to argue that the states were were inferior in terms of their, their authority to, to Native people because Congress had plenary powers. We had Native people making that argument, something that I think is, I mean, is incredibly dangerous. I mean, look, I'm among, again, that small minority of Native people who, who reject claiming U.S. citizenship for a variety of reasons, not the least of which, don't want to be a U.S. citizen. I'm, I'm Mohawk. I'm Gunyagahaga. I, I am not I am not legally bound to accept U.S. citizenship or have it imposed upon me. So, but if you're going to argue that Congress has ultimate authority over you, it makes your sovereignty argument pretty weak. And I got to say, I know the arguments were made. The arguments were made about our, um, our political status. But the court didn't rule that we were politically sovereign. They rejected, and, and they rejected the challenge based on both the merits of their argument, some of them, but also on the standing, whether you had the legal standing to even raise these challenges. So that's what they, they and it was seven to two. I think it was just, 
Alito and Thomas that uh, that you know voted you know to um, dismantle ICWA. No surprise there that it was those two. Um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett was the the one who wrote the ruling, and and she basically said, you know, tried to declare that uh, ICWA was non unconstitutional because of the Equal Protections Act. She said that that was a non-starter. So that she threw out right the bat, right off the bat. But you know, when they get into this debate about what's constitutional, again, sovereignty is never uh, never never the argument. So I got to say that. I haven't received the full text of both the affirming opinion and the, um, uh, the dissenting opinions yet, and I, and I will get a chance to do that. I plan to do the show in anticipation of uh, what the court ruling would have been. And I got to tell you, I am surprised. I am pleasantly surprised. I'm glad the Supreme Court rejected this challenge. I'm glad they, you know, they kept ICWA in place. But I got to say, ICWA still doesn't recognize our sovereignty. So, you know, and the reason I bring this up is, look, I, I often talk, so, talk about how issues get siloed. And, you know, the idea of, of using our kids again, you know, just like in this assimilation process, using residential schools to, to, to take our children to destroy us, you know, and to eliminate us as a distinct people by targeting our children. Well, this case was an example of that. You know, here you have oil executives using a family. And look, I don't know the Brackeens. I mean, I don't know if they're good people or not. Um, I have my own doubts about their integrity because of some of what they, you know. Hey, look, and I get it. There are a lot of white folks who love grabbing um, uh, marginalized kids, marginalized populations and adopting them. Some for very good reasons. Some not so for some very good reasons. Now, you know, obviously some of these Hollywood uh, um, people come to mind, Angelina Jolie and Madonna or whoever. I mean, you, you can't help but, but wonder how much of this stuff is publicity. But I don't know what the Brackeen's main interest was. I mean, man, there had to be white kids and, or, or, or black kids or, or, you know, other brown kids. But there's almost this strange fascination that white people, it's kind of like why they use this for mascots, right? The strange fascination that white people have with Native people. I mean, and this gets into fetishizing Native women and why we have missing and murdered Indigenous women and, uh, you know, uh, a rape culture that makes uh, Native women four times more likely to suffer uh, sexual assault than, than, than white women. I mean, it, it, there's, there's a strange allure that white people have towards native native people and uh and i wish i wish somebody would explain it to me but it was even predicted i mean that you know that you know white people would talk in later ages about you know the grand kings of the forest and plain that was uh, uh l frank Baum who said that as he was calling for our extermination that it was better to wipe us out so they could speak highly of us later but so but this, this whole idea that Congress has this power and, and they don't just wield it when it's necessary. Sometimes they wield it when it's not necessary. Look, they, I think it was necessary for Congress to end residential schools. But they should have recognized our sovereignty. They should have recognized our right to um, 
not only remove a child from, from an unsafe home or an unsafe situation, but to place those children. And they didn't. So they, in doing what they did, many will praise it, but they won't look at the downside. And the downside is sometimes a pattern, but it also reaffirms authorities that are questionable, like the plenary powers of Congress, right? Especially, and I'm not debating whether Congress has power within the federal government. My question is, do they really have plenary powers over us when we didn't give it to them? Look, we aren't talking about conquest here. So any of you people who suggest, well, yeah, but Native people were conquered by the United States. No, no, we weren't. We were defrauded. We were lied to. We, we made treaties with the federal government when the federal government had no, never had any intentions of following, of, of keeping up their end of the bargain. And every time a treaty got broken, it's not like the United States says, yeah, we're going to break this treaty, so we're going to give you your stuff back. <laughs> no, no, that doesn't happen. That's not, that's not the way it works. But when you do have something like Congress, because here's a story I'm going to talk about over the next week or two, which has to do with the Seneca Nation and their battle with New York State over gaming, over gaming revenue, over um, the negotiations for a gaming compact. Now, why would, the, why would Seneca's want a gaming compact with New York State? I'll tell you why. Because the federal government, Congress, passed a law after the Supreme Court affirmed that we had the right to do gaming, Congress said, oh, well, we can't just have them do that. We've got to, we've got to put something in place. The courts just said they could legally do this stuff. We better put some impediments in the way. So they did. They passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. And what did they do with the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act? They put the states in our business. They essentially gave them not just equal, but a lion's share of regulatory authority over, uh, over our gaming enterprises. They didn't need to do it. We didn't need them to to create the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. We were already doing gaming. In fact, we were already doing, you know, casinos and and that kind of stuff. Not not in a broad, broad way. And the Supreme Court, when they make a ruling, let's be clear here. They don't just rule on the merits of a case. They rule on the implications that their rulings are going to have. So... When the Supreme Court was hearing a case out in California called Cabazon, where the state of California was trying to shut down a a native, it wasn't even a casino, it was was a bingo, high stakes bingo, or or assert regulatory control over them, the Supreme Court said, no, you don't have that. You don't have that power. In fact, there's nothing in any law that says states have the power to to regulate, um, you know, Especially that states have the power. Let's keep in mind now. Congress claims to have, uh, in the Commerce Clause, the, the power to regulate commerce with Native people. Not of Native people, but with Native people. But the states don't have that. And so that's what, that's what the Supreme Court ruled. Then, in a year's time, Congress pushes through the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that does something that we had been fighting decade after decade after decade over which was what the states could do in terms of regulating our, both our regulatory advantages and our basic lives. Again, keep in mind that we still had the states grabbing kids out of homes. But now they, they, they you know, because this law gets passed in like um, 
1988 or, yeah, 1988, I guess. I mean, that's a decade after the states were told, yeah, you can take children out of their homes, but you've got to make sure you put them back in native homes. But the, now the states were being granted power that they didn't have from Congress to be involved in our gaming businesses. And of course, the federal government, by virtue of these so-called treaties, has always asserted that they had a trust responsibility to Native people. That sounds nice, because trust sounds like a good word. It sounds like a virtuous word. The problem is, they don't mean trust as, as a matter of virtue. They don't mean, I can trust you, or you should trust us. When they say trust, they mean like trusteeship. They mean that, that the federal government has a role as our custodians. This is where this notion that we are merely just wards of the state. And some Congress people have said this even recently. That we are wards of the state. I mean, this goes to the Killers of the Flower Moon um, book and, and the Osage murders. Native people can't be trusted with their own money. We need to have guardians put in place so, so we can protect them. And it's never really about protecting. I mean, when they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, IGRA as we call, as we call it, they claimed it was supposed to protect us from organized crime and protect us from, you know, over-aggressive states. Now, what, what was going to be the means for, to, to keep a state in check? It was supposed to be the Interior Department. But it's a funny thing that happens when we talk about the role the federal government is supposed to have in enforcing the laws that they create and to make sure that those laws aren't violated. Because there's no question that the, that the state of New York screwed the Senecas for, for over 20 years here. I mean, the, the, and as we tried to get the Interior Department to say, look, we're being screwed here, they wouldn't, they wouldn't do their job. Not even when Deb Haaland sits there, they wouldn't do their job. I'll give you another example. Talked about this on, on one of my other podcasts. The New York State Thruway goes through Seneca territory here. Goes through several miles of the Seneca territory. And it got pushed through the Senecas and by the Senecas, or you know, pushed through the Senecas in like 1954. This was in the, at the peak of the termination era where anything that we challenged the state or the federal government over could have been a reason for them to say, you know what, we're just going to terminate you, and then, then we don't have to have these land disputes with you anymore. We're just going to take your land. We're just going to call your land part of New York State because they'd never been able to do that before. And New York, I mean, the, the Thruway Authority, or the, the, if, if it was actually called that in the beginning, but, but New York knew what they had to do. They knew they, there was a process they had to follow to acquire, either through easement or otherwise, Seneca land. They, they had to, the Interior Department told them what they had to do. They had to have federal approval, approval of it. In fact, there's a thing called the Non-Intercourse Act. No, it has nothing to do with intercourse, but um, in that way. But the Non-Intercourse Act says, no, land can't be taken from Native people. And if Native people are going to transfer land use or land title, there has to be federal, uh, federal involvement in it. Because states can't do that by themselves. So when the state screwed the Senecas out of that land, 
paid him $75,000 for it, refused to pay them any, uh, any of the tolls that were going to be collected, billions of dollars worth of tolls that was going to be collected. The Seneca said to, said to Washington, he said, said, look, this land was, this throughway was never approved properly. You have a very specific and detailed law, very matter of fact, very black and white, that, that the throughway deal was illegal. And then the judges say, yeah, but, um, you know, it's maybe not quite legal. So, so they hem and haw, and they don't do anything about it. So all of this so-called trust responsibility, I mean, it is neither trust responsibility as, as they say it through trusteeship <laughs> and, and them being our custodians because they aren't, nor is it a matter of trust as a virtue. This is our history. And that's why I condemn this notion of siloing issues, because they're all related. You can see how ICWA gets passed, you know, and, and bolsters this notion of Congress having powers over us. A mere 10 years later, they strip away, you know, they, they find a way to make native gaming illegal because it was never illegal before that. And they do it by plugging the states and, and demanding, that okay, well, you have to have a um, a state-nation com uh, gaming compact. And then the states have disproportionate power on whether they will even negotiate in good faith or not. And that's where the Senecas are, are um, stuck with a problem with New York State. And I'm going to talk about that probably in the next week's show because that's getting ugly and juicy. But we have to consider all these things together. We've got to understand that everything from the failure of the United States to not only fulfill its treaty obligations, but the idea that they're going to somehow pretend they never recognized our sovereignty. And look, we, we heard it from the beginning. This is what the doctrine of Christian discovery was all about, right? Justice John Marshall, I think in 1823, said, the sovereignty of Native people is necessarily diminished upon discovery by white people. That's what he said. Ruth Bader Ginsburg the liberal darling of the court stayed a little bit too long. <laughs> she said the same thing in 2005. So we're talking about 1823 and 2005. That is, I mean, it's funny. Um, Clarence Thomas once wrote an opinion in a case called U.S. v. Lara, L-A-R-A. Um, and what he said is the courts have been schizophrenic over the notion of native sovereignty. He, he actually said he doesn't see in the foundational documents, the, you know, the Constitution or anyplace else, where there's proper support for this plenary powers doctrine. You know, he, he challenged it. Now, he doesn't say, they he's not saying they shouldn't have it. He's just saying, we got to do something to make sure that, that native sovereignty doesn't exist. Because as I'm reading the law, I'm not seeing where Congress has plenary powers over Native people. I mean, that was, that was Clarence Thomas. Now, he wasn't saying it for us. He was essentially putting the warning out there that they've built this whole plenary powers doctrine and this eradication of our sovereignty and a house of cards. He welcomed the court to revisit this issue. But they haven't. They keep building more laws and more laws and more laws on this house of cards. And, and some of the laws suck. ICWA doesn't suck completely. 
I'm, I'm glad it was, uh, was upheld. But it's still not the right solution. We still have states taking our children, states placing our children. And ICWA didn't completely eradicate the placement of Native children in white homes. It just made, made the burden a little harder for them to do that. I mean, there are, there are many people, not just in my generation, younger than me, who were never raised in Native homes. And you, you also had other, other programs and policies that fit in with some of these five other policies of the United States. You know, I talk about removal. Well, they actually had another policy, I think it was during the Nixon administration, called the Relocation Program. That wasn't about necessarily removing us from Native territories, well, from our ancestral lands, although, yeah, it really was. It was about offering jobs and, you know, crappy apartments in, in urban settings. So taking Native people off the reservation, putting them in places like Minneapolis, St. Paul, giving them a job and say, there, we're going to break this connection between you and your Native territory. Of course, that's what residential schools did too. So there has been a series of other programs that fit within these, you know, within these, these, these five uh, policies. And, you know, and even extermination. Look, there, there's a new uh, bill, uh, Senate bill, uh, that came out of the Indian Affairs Committee. And they call it something to the effect like um, truth and healing. And it's, it's supposed to be to investigate the residential schools. And, you know, and it's particularly ironic that there's a bill before the Senate, and it, you know, it might pass the Senate. I doubt it'll get through the House because of the Re Republican majority. But the, the idea of investigating and trying to create truth and healing associated with residential schools, how ironic is it that as we're talking about this genocidal policy, and assimilation is genocide, in, ca in case you're wondering, it is genocide. This genocidal policy is going to somehow be looked at. We're going to tell the truth, and then we're going to try to heal. But if you're not talking about restoration of our autonomy, the very identities you stripped away, and we're having this conversation, you know, thankfully, after the Supreme Court could have stripped it all away with one ruling. We are under a constant assault. Look. Two Supreme Court justices voted to, uh, you know, to eliminate ICWA. Two. And it wouldn't, you know, most of us predicted that, that ICWA was under a real threat. Because if it wasn't going to be eliminated completely, it was going to be eliminated significantly. It was going to be greatly reduced. And now it didn't. This time it didn't. But, you know, everything from... LGTB rights to, you know, some of the, uh, you know, medical uh, support for trans kids and, and, and abortion pills, uh, abortion itself, everything is being reduced to a fight between the state and the federal government over who has power, including power over us. Gaming, child adoptions, land rights. We're in a constant battle all the time. And we can't take that for granted. We can't. Because 
this could have gone very badly, and it might go badly the next time. And look, and I'm not saying if the, if the Supreme Court ruled to, uh, you know, that ICWA was unconstitutional, that, that all was lost. What I'm saying is we, we, we would have had to fight like hell. And I think that's something that we have to be, be prepared for all the time. Because this is, look, this is what's different about being Native than anybody else. Our relationship with the United States is not one of being merely an inferior race of Americans. I mean, and I'm not suggesting anybody is or should be or, or should be regarded as an inferior race of Americans. But let's be honest here. That's what the racism is all about. And racism is deeply embedded in almost every aspect of American culture, if you want to call it that. Everything from commerce, politics, law enforcement, the courts, entertainment, media, everything. And for Native people, our very existence as a distinct political and sovereign people is ignored and rejected by states, by the federal government, by industry, and yet we still keep fighting. And we're going to keep fighting. I'm going to be talking about um, gaming, the Seneca Nation's fight with New York State. I'll be talking about that next week, so I hope that you'll join me. Um, you know, I didn't know today if I'd get through all of this information. Um, I, I will review the, the, the decisions that were written. Again, I'm glad that the, the courts upheld ICWA, but ICWA is still problematic. And I know many Native people won't say that. Many Native people, you know, want to walk this line between being patriotic Americans and being sovereign Native people. Well, can't have it both ways. You can't claim sovereignty and, that, and, and then argue that Congress has your back because they don't. So I want to thank you for listening. I will talk more about some of this issue, but uh, certainly I'm going to take, break down those silos so people understand why gaming and gaming law has some of the same issues as child protection laws. I am John Kane. This is Resistance Radio. Thank you for listening. Yahweh.